We're in Colossians chapter 3, continuing our series Supreme through the book of Colossians where we see that Christ is supreme, the risen Lord is supreme. Title of today's message is how to, mo- how to exchange the gross life for the good life. How to exchange the gross life for the good life. So we're not going to do fear factor, but I have been known to do such things. So this is a, a, a bib, a child's bib, a used child's bib. I won't put it on and won't get around, but fresh from the breakfast table. Okay, this one actually looks really, doesn't look so bad, right? I've seen some that look a lot worse. We, um, we have started having our um, grandson about one day a week. He's about a 14 months old now, and so um, I get to watch him try to eat, all right? And he's, he, he, does, he does the hold the fork in one hand and, and then use your hand to eat, right? And he wears a bib still. Um, this is what I call the marsupial bib because it has the pouch in the front to accentuate the grossness because it collects everything that it's supposed to collect anyway. It doesn't, but it catches more. When we had our, our girls, we, we went through all the different kinds of bibs and uh, just, uh, you know, it's just when they're done, especially when they're pretty young and learning the very beginnings, right? It's, it's gross on them. It's gross around them anywhere within six feet of them. You've got something on you. And then there's the time when you come back to the table later and there's still some underneath or whatever. It's just gross, right? And so when I think of the good life, I also think of, because of this passage, the gross life. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, talks about exchanging one for the other. And he tells us how and why. So that's kind of what today is about. Um, the uh, commentator that kind of made this come to mind, his name is Scott Pace. And I, I read, I read uh, lots of other books to try to help me think through what, what does this passage teach us. And Scott Pace is one of those out of his commentary. Um, Kent Hughes is another. Um, and he said, he said this, and I wanted, I wanted to read this quote because I felt like it really helped us capture kind of what he's trying to do, what the Apostle Paul's trying to do today, or in, in this passage. And he says this, this is from, this is Scott Pace, he says, too often we're more concerned about feeding our desires more than ministering to those in need. Instead, we must take off our spiritual bibs and put on spiritual aprons that reflect the compassionate heart of our Savior by loving others and willingly sacrificing on their behalf. So I also brought... An apron. I didn't really think ahead because I wore the same color, so there's not much contrast, but anyway. All right? So when you think of uh, an apron, you think of uh, maybe, maybe some of you remember back to a, a grandparent or a parent who would use an apron. People don't use aprons in their own kitchens anymore, really. Um, but I also think of fancy restaurants where they come out, the waiters or the waitresses come out, and they have these really nice-looking aprons. And um, this is a marsupial, too. Um, and and, the, and the whole, it's a whole different mindset, right? It's, uh, I'm here to serve you, and if you're, some of your food gets on me, well, I'm prepared, <laughs> okay? If your kid throws something, I've, I've got a place to catch it. The idea is I am serving, okay, as opposed to um, t- it's all on me because it's all about me. That's, that's the contrast he's trying to paint here. So if I can get out of this without... And so what I, what I think he's challenging us to think about today 
is um, do, you want to be, do you want your life to be characterized by a bib or an apron? Okay? Now, I know what you want to say, and I know what I want to say, but the question is, maybe even the, the, the earlier question is, which characterizes your life if somebody were to observe you last week? Which would look more appropriate on you? And uh, you might ask people that. You might not want to ask people that. You might just want to say, well, let's just go forward and let's see where, we, where this takes us. So uh, with that said, we're going to start reading. I'm going to start reading back in verse 1. Casey read the passage for us. And we're going to work through verses 5 through 14. But I, I want to give us the running start, 1 through 4, because it, it, it keeps us with the context of what's happening. Keep in mind that Paul is writing a letter. This is a letter. It's a formal letter, which is called an epistle. Okay. Um, I like to just call it a formal letter. And it is a letter he wrote to a group of people called the Colossians. And the reason they're called Colossians is because they were a group of Christians who worshipped in the church at Colossae. So they only had one church in each city in biblical times or in the early church times. And even though they met in multiple places all over the city, they were considered one church. And they were under the, the leadership was, was over that city. And so uh, this letter was Paul writing to them in response to the pastor or the head elder or however they described him, Epaphras, going and leaving Colossae in modern-day Turkey and traveling all the way to Rome where Paul was imprisoned but able to talk to people. And Epaphras goes to Paul, and they know each other. They have a relationship. And, and, and Epaphras is like, I know you've never been to Colossae. I know you don't know these people, but I'm having trouble because there's all these false teachers stirring up trouble, dividing our people, and teaching us to live in ways that are very self-absorbed instead of very selfless. What am I going to do? And so Paul's um, ultimate solution is, let me write him a letter for you. And then he wrote the letter of Colossians, and he sent it back. And he said, and he wrote even in the letter, you know, share it with them in Colossae. And then when y'all are done reading it, ship it over to the, the church at Laodicea nearby. Let them read through it and hear what I have to say because they can, they can take the same principles and apply it. And, and, and I don't think, I don't know how far ahead Paul thought this would go, but here we are reading it 2,000 years later and it's still ministering and, and teaching us how to live, how to live well, how to exchange the gross life for the good life. And so uh, with that, I would really appreciate a, a moment of prayer, and then we'll jump in. So let's do that. Lord God, this is your word. It's, it, it's not ultimately written by people. I mean, we, people wrote it down, but they wrote it down inspired by your spirit moving in, in and around them to make it so that we only got what you wanted us to get. It was written to a time and a people in that time specifically for them. But Lord, we can look at the principles that are timeless and culture above culture, transcultural, and we can apply them to our lives today because people really haven't changed. And so Lord, I pray that we would humble ourselves, that we would open our hearts and minds to what you have to say, believing that you're speaking, even through imperfect people like me, because you're that good, you're that great. And your spirit is in this place. Your people have come and gathered in the name of Jesus, bearing witness to um, the fact that you've made us image bearers, imperfect though we are because of sin and, and all of that, and that you're working, and that, you're, that you want to do some more work here now in this time. So we pray for our children in, in the back and that you'll do a work in their hearts and minds. But we pray in this room and on these screens 
in living rooms and kitchens and bedrooms and on the, in, the, in the car, wherever people are, where they're watching, listening, even whether it's live or, or later, whether we're sitting right here in a chair, my prayer is that you will, you will cause us to realize you're real, you're revealing yourself to us so that we might be changed to be more like you. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Since then, Paul writes, you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart, your affections, your will, your mind even, on things above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your minds, just to double down on the thinking part, the rational part, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So you see this, this desire for us to move our affections from the earthly things that we're so preoccupied with to heavenly things. And then he gives us the reasons in verse 3 and 4, and when he says, for you died, that's when we died spiritually to ourselves when we trusted Christ. If you trust Christ, you're surrendering, you're exchanging your life and your agenda and your crown for his, okay? You're giving him permission to rearrange the furniture in your house, so to speak, okay, your heart, okay? Um, and then he says, so, so for you died, and your life is now hidden in him. That means you identify with Christ, Okay? You died with him, were buried and raised to walk a new life with him. This is what we say when we baptize people because it all works together. And, and then it says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear also with him in glory. Okay? Where we're headed. That's where salvation is complete. Okay? We're justified. We're being sanctified. And one day we'll be glorified. And that means we'll be in his presence, separated from sin and self and all the rest. Verse 5. Here's where we get into it. Okay? Now he's going to... He's going to, in a couple of verses, he's going to describe um, this taking off, and then he's going to move on to this putting on, okay? So I want you to kind of think of, and you don't have to use this imagery, but I'm thinking, take off the, the gross bib, spiritual bib of my yuckiness, drop that, and then put on the nice, clean, brand new apron that's going to get soiled because of the work he's calling us to. It's going to look gross because we're going to get down in the mud with, the, with those we're serving. We're willing to go there. Okay? If you're a shepherd, you're going to smell like the sheep and they stink. Well, just remember, you're a sheep too. You just happen to have a staff too. Okay? And Christ loves all, um, no matter what we smell like. So there's that. Um, so he says, put to death. And he starts off right off the bat. Paul kind of hits it hard. He basically, I mean, this is a nice way of saying crucify okay we could say electrocute we could say slit the throat but the point is this is a violent action because it, it calls for a violent action it calls for a, a sure action this is like when jesus said if your eye causes you to sin gouge it out if your hand causes you to sin chop it off now we don't uh, we don't tell you to do that literally because that's not what is intended here. Something that's intended here is much harder to do, actually, because it gets at the heart of the issue, and it's about surgery, spiritual surgery, on what, where the motives come from that cause us to steal or, or to lust through the eye or whatever it is that we're sinning using those things. So put to death, therefore, in light of what I just read, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature what is your earthly nature okay some translations would call this the flesh some translations would call this your sinful nature your worldly ways 
Okay? This is the, the part that describes what you and I do without God. It's the way you and I live without God. If we're not paying attention to him, or we might believe there's a God, but we're living as if he's not relevant, then you're living in earthly ways. And let's be honest, most of our world is living in that way. And the rest of us Christians, we're pretty much living that way too a lot of the time. Okay? We just don't like to talk about that part. right? Let's, you know, yeah, that's for someone else. But the reality is that's what the enemy is always pulling us to do. It's what the worldly philosophies are always pulling us to do. And there's this component in our flesh, this residual sin, if you will, that is still there that is also influencing us to live this way. So we have those three enemies, the, the enemy himself, Satan, the world's philosophies and the worldly ways, and then you have the flesh itself. That's All those things are working against us, causing us to live in a defeated way, a way that leads to lack of satisfaction no matter how much happiness you're trying to pursue. He's saying execute that. Get uh, Dave Ramsey, when he's talking about debt, he says, you gotta, I hear him sometimes, he'll say to somebody, get mad at your debt. Get angry at it. Take it by the throat. And I kind of like that it's, 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 it, in that it pictures this. And he's basically saying, take your debt by the throat and do something about it. And don't allow, allow it to control you anymore. Well, he's just talking about money. Right? Paul's talking about that which drives everything you do. Not just your greedy handling of money. Not just your self-centered desires of fill in the blank. He's saying, this is everything. You need to execute it crucify it okay when jesus says in luke 9 23 if anyone come after me he must first deny himself okay take up his cross daily and follow me okay and and so this those are all violent ways of dealing with sin okay and and god it's not like god's pro-violence right god is very much not but there is a time to deal with things in a very sure, permanent way, okay? And when we play with sin, it's kind of like the person who lives at a, who, who takes their little, their little dog, I'll use a nice term, little, little tiny toy dog, and they take him for the walk along the pond where the gators are. And they keep feeding the gators, and the dog's sitting there, and, and the dog barks at him, and the gators just sit there week after week after week until one day the gator decides... I've had enough of this, and he has another little dog nugget for lunch. Because you were playing with the gator as if he wasn't really dangerous. And you got comfortable with him. Well, sin is just like that. If you keep playing with the sin, it will come and bite you. It might not just bite your dog. <laughs> okay, it'll hurt those in your life, and it'll hurt you. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly desires, nature. And then he describes it, and he gives you five descriptors, and this is going to happen again, but this is a category, okay? And I think it'll be obvious what category it is. Sexual immorality, okay? The Greek word for that is pornea, or porneum, which is where we get our word pornography. It is the broad category of sexual sins. You name it, if it's a sexual sin, it fits in that category, um, immorality, sexual immorality, impurity, that's even broader, but the context again is sexual sin, which if you look at 1 Corinthians 6, Paul seems to put that kind of sin in a different category from all other sins. And that doesn't mean it's worse, but it does mean something. 
And I don't have time to unpack that other than to say, to me, it gets my attention when Paul says, this is a different sin than all the others because this sin you're actually committing against your own body. That sounds not in my best interest like. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, which is basically through the eyes and the mind. This is the kind of sin you can hide pretty well, okay? This is why sunglasses sell really well at the beach, one of the reasons, okay? Because you can just be at the beach and I'm people watching. I got my shades on, all right? Lust, evil desires, okay? And, And it's all of this is, a lot of this is here and then it plays out, okay? But it always starts here and in, in our hearts, okay? Our lives are just a, dis- just a display of what's overflowing from our minds and our hearts, okay? If we're honest. And some of us are really good at keeping it inside, and so we're pretty good at wearing the mask and playing the game and faking it. Um, and, but God sees it all. And then the last one is greed. And greed, we think of money, but greed is really just an insatiable pursuit for more. Okay? Um, my grandson is he's learning that this is sign language for more, and he's pretty good at saying more yeah and uh, if he wants a little more and it just depends on what it is you know more french fries yes yes i'm with him on that okay so um and then and then he then there's this end of the sentence which is idolatry and that's a word we don't like to use but remember i think last week we said we wanted um to quit making good things god things because that is idolatry so uh, if I'm fishing, that's a good thing unless I make it an idol where it's, everything revolves around it. And so now it's, not, it's a God thing. I've made that become a, a, like a religion. I've made that thing be like a God in my life. And you can take anything that is good in creation and make it a God. Okay? So making a good thing a God thing, that's idolatry. And he's saying when you make any of these sexual perversions so important that they affect the way that you live, okay, then that's an idol. And oh, by the way, for those of you that think it's not hurting anybody because nobody knows, you are extremely naive and foolish. And I would tell you that to your face. And because God has said it to us. And so I'm just passing it on. Um, Then it goes to verse 6. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Okay? It doesn't, I mean, that's a pretty strong statement, wouldn't you say? I mean, he could say because of sin, but he says because of these And that list is right there. So sexual sin is pretty big in Paul's eyes because he thinks it's pretty big in God's eyes. And he's making it very clear to a culture in that day that was extremely sexually perverse throughout the entire Roman Empire. It's kind of like America. Okay, so um, because of these things, the wrath of God. Now, what is wrath? Okay, we're going to see later that he's going to talk about anger and wrath kind of together. And, and wrath is like more than just being um, equally agitated. This is like, I'm getting in your face about that. And, and it's, there's something coming that is going to make you extremely uncomfortable because of the wrath. And for, for God, ultimately, wrath is judgment. Uh, when, when it's the wrath of a parent, it, it's a different thing because um, it's usually not pure of heart. Verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Now he's getting at something that's root here. You used to walk in these ways. Why? He's talking to Christians, people who profess Christ and have given their lives to him. So they're people who say, my identity now is in Christ. I am a son or a daughter of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, the risen King, and I submit my life gladly to him. Okay? That's what they would say. I don't know that they would live in that way, but they are saying that. All right? He said, you used to walk when this was king of your life. These things were ruling your hearts and your minds. Okay? You used to not be who you are now in Christ. 
And the reason he's making a big deal about that is because you and I behave based on the belief of who we are. Okay, we're, we're always asking the question and really answering the question, who am I? And that's a good question to ask. Um, and you're either a, a son of the, of the king or a daughter of the king. You're either in Christ or you're not. And if you're not, then you're an enemy of the king. You're an enemy of Christ. The Bible makes that clear in Romans 5. You and I are either enemies, we're against him, or we're for him. There's no middle ground. Okay? You may say, well, I'm not against God. Well, if you're not living in the way he called you to live as his creation, then you are against God. You're just not thinking about it much, maybe. You're not maybe making a big deal about it. But there's really no in-between. He makes it very clear. It's kind of like being in-between unmarried and married. There's really no in-between, right? You're either married or you're not. There's a moment you walk into the church, you walk down, you, I do, you smack, and you walk, right? I mean, that's, right? And when you're walking out, you're, you're Mr. and Mrs., and when you walk in, you're two separate people, right? We do the whole candle thing and the sand and the kumbaya, all of that to show two individuals come in, one couple, one flesh walk out, right? Okay? There's no in-between, and the same is true with Christ. That's why one of the reasons God uses marriage as a picture of the gospel Right? And it's one of the reasons why when God talks about his people, he talks and calls us the bride of Christ. Okay? You're either married to Christ or not. I know that's weird, but it's spiritual, it's, it's figurative, but we can relate to it because we've seen what married people look like. Not that it's pretty a lot of times. Okay? We're imperfect examples of what is perfect. Okay? That's pointing to something that's perfect and eternal. Okay, so he says, that's the way you used to live. Then he goes... Then we have, but now, verse 8, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things. Now we're taking off the bib, okay? Rid yourselves of all such things. And then he goes into another category with five other things. And he moves from sexual immorality to social immorality, okay? And these five things are anger, rage, which oftentimes are together in Scripture, sometimes describing God's anger and rage at sin, okay? And uh, malice which is, is this evil intent behind the outburst or the anger. Slander, okay? So this is interesting where we, we slander, right? When you slander someone, you're saying something untrue about them publicly to bring them down, to bring them disgrace. When we slander God, you know what that's called? It's called blasphemy. You could argue that when you slander an individual committed, I'm sorry, created in the image of God, you could also argue that that's blasphemy too. But I digress. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Filthy language, okay? Um, so uh, it's interesting. We, we tend to minimize filthy language, all right? And in this case, it's not just talking about coarse language. It's including that. But it's also talking about abusive language. We've heard of verbal abuse. It falls into here. But it, it's almost like, I don't know if, if this pulls the others down or if this lifts that one up, but it's a big deal to God, what we say. And remember, Jesus said what you say is really just an overflow of what's in your heart. So if you're, if you're always blowing off the, your top and always getting angry with people at the drop of the hat, that's because something in your heart is not healthy and good, if it's alive at all. Okay? But Christians do, can do this too. When you don't allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify your, your, that process of becoming like Christ, and that's what this is all about, then you're still going to act like you were. You're just forgetting who you are. Okay? This is where we talk about that gap between the position we have in Christ and the practice in which we live. 
There's this gap between where we should be and where we really are. We profess Christ as our Savior, okay? And that's why we get to heaven, because of that profession of faith. When I declare that I trust and follow Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I'm saying by grace through faith, that's where I need to be, that's where I want to be, I can't get there. And God rescues us from where we're headed, and he brings us to a point where at least we're saying and starting to become a person whose practice starts to look like their position. The position is secure because it's all based on who? It's all based on him. The practice is, eh, it's up and down. Why? Because it's based on how we respond to who's put us in this position. So this is why we're uncomfortable when we read scripture and Paul calls Christians saints. We're like, I'm no saint. And God's like, I know, <laughs> except that you are. I call you a saint because you are a holy one. You have been set apart to unto me. Your life just doesn't look like it right now. There's this huge gap. And I, I'm trying to do through my spirit who I've implanted in you is to help you close the gap by practice so that your life begins to reflect Christ more and more. And people, when they see you, they actually see Jesus which draws them to him, and then more people who start down here, they begin to close their gap. See how it works? Okay? This identity, who I am, is where I get my position. I am a privileged son or daughter of the king. That means I'm a prince or a princess, and I'm not talking Disney here. I'm talking way better than that, okay? And I'm in that position, and nobody can take it away because God, my creator, gave it to me, though I deserve the worst that he could dish out. But I'm in this struggle because I still live in this world where sin abounds and we have this worldly nature. I still have that fleshly nature going. I'm this, this ongoing battle of trying to, to live up to this. Now, here's, this is really important. God doesn't love me based on where I am here. You realize that, right? If you're having a good day and you're all the way up to here, he doesn't love you more than the days when you're down here. He loves you based on this. Well, what did you have to do with making that happen? Nothing. Because he just loves you. But I, I don't deserve. That's right. Neither do I. This is him. He says, I love you because I created you and I redeemed you. I sent my son to take your place on the cross so you wouldn't have to die for your sins. Okay? Because I love you. God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Done. Love. You are his beloved. Okay? But we tend to put too much weight on this. And we do this with our kids, too. We, we love them more on the days they behave well, you know. And instead of saying, good job, we say, good girl. What does that imply? When you're not good, you're not a good girl. That's identity. Now you're tying her identity to her actions instead of to her position. If she's your daughter, she's a good girl. Why? Because she's yours. Okay? And now, if you don't think that doesn't scar them for years, be careful. Words matter. They create culture. You shape your kids by the things that you say and the things that you do. And when they don't line up, they look at the things that you do. Okay? But it matters what we say. Okay? All right. So um, let's, let's, we are at, um, so verse 8, we finished up the list, the second list. And then 9, it says, do not lie. It's like he adds this to kind of undergird all those other things. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices passions, and he's getting to the root of it, the pride. You've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. 
the mind of Christ is where he's referring to, and this, he talks about this in, in Philippians and other places. When we think like Jesus, we behave like Jesus because we want to. So it's not just I, I have this duty, it's I delight in, right? I mean, who wants to be following a God who's got a whip and he's, just, and he's saying, you know, do this or you're shame. I'm shame to you. And it's all built on shame or, or pride. And, and that's not how God operates. We do good things because he saved us. We don't do good things to earn salvation. Because that mindset is 180 degrees. And the, and the enemy always wants us to think the backwards. So he gets into this, do not lie. And then he says, and we put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. Okay, that's, that renewing happens through the word of God. Okay. Therefore, my brothers, therefore, um, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be, re, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Romans 12, 1 and 2. That renewing of the mind is what brings transformation. And if you're transformers fan... And you love to watch Prime, Optimus Prime transform into a Peterbilt tractor trailer and back and, and, and bring down justice on the, what are the bad guys called? Decepticons. Yeah, we got some in the house. Come on. Um, right? So if you love that beautiful transformation, right, Bumblebee to a beautiful yellow Chevy Camaro or Beetle, depending on your preference then you will really love the transformation that Christ brings us through his spirit, okay? And this is where you get some of those testimonies where people get up and people remember what that guy was like and then he gets up and he tells a story about what he's like now and they're like, yeah, you'd, you would not recognize him. Why? Because he's been transformed. He's being transformed. And if you and I are, have a tender heart, we are too, if they're tender to the things of God. So then he says, um, verse 11, here there is no Gentile. So this is getting into um, the unity thing. So this isn't just an individual thing. So far it sounds like that's all it's about. But this is about us. It's not just about me. Okay? What's that show, that TV show all about? What's it? It's going off. Uh, us? When, what's it called? This is us? Is that it? This is us? I've never watched it. I don't know anything about it except that everybody cries every time they watch it, I hear. I don't know if that's true or not. But um, it sounds like a Hallmark movie to me. But uh, this is us in a sense that we are in this together. And what you do affects me and what I do affects you. And if I do good things that honor God, that affects you in a positive way. And if I do things that are sinful, that affects you too. There's no such thing as a sin that you can commit that doesn't affect someone else. Now, tell your coworker when he's looking at porn... That affects your marriage or your future marriage or your kids or your future kids. And it's like nobody knows. Oh, but your body knows, your mind knows, your heart knows. And that affects how you live when you're with them with that history on your brain and those grooves in your brain that are now there that want more and more and more. And it's the same addiction that you get every time you flip Instagram. And I want to know where you pull the slot on the slot machine or you swipe left or right. All of those things, same mental is going on and it's it's we when we live undisciplined lives and not allowing the holy spirit's fruit to bear fruit in self-control then we're just giving ourselves over and there's no saint that gap is doing this because we are surrendering to the wrong 
the wrong thing, the wrong one. Here there is no Jew or Gentile. So in that day, this was a big deal, right? You had the Jews and the Gentiles, and a Gentile is anybody who's not a Jew. So it's Greeks, it's Romans, it's Africans, it's um, you name it, okay? And the Jews were very much, we're the chosen people. God has given us the old covenant to prove it, and um, we have been given the covenant, Abram, Abraham covenant comes from the Jews. He's the first Jew, and he's the father of that covenant, the father of, of those covenants. And, and what we see here is this sense of what, what were the Jews like when they typically treated others? They looked down everybody else because when they thought that they were chosen because they, they thought they were chosen because they were all that in a bag of chips, but they're looking down everybody at this condescending attitude. Okay? And you know it when somebody's looking down on you. You can feel it, Right? That does not bring unity into the body of Christ. And yet we had a lot of Jews who were trusting Christ and coming into the body of Christ. And so they were like, oh, let's throw some Jewish laws at them and make them do what we had to do. Misery loves company, right? And so you're going to have to do all those terrible things that we had to do to prove we were a covenant under Abraham. And, 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 Christ, and Paul's saying, no, you don't have to do that. You don't do, it's been done on the cross. There's no doing to earn. It's done so we get to do because of the overflow of who we are in Christ. And so there's this pride, and, and that's the root here. We went from passions to practices, now we're into pride here in verse 11. Here there is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised. That gets into that Jewish law in particular we talked about a few weeks ago, that spiritual circumcision of the heart. That's what matters. When God cuts away the junk around our spiritual heart that keeps us from being sensitive to the things of God. You know what it's like to harden your heart. We've all done it. Even though in Christ there's these times when God is pushing you to do something or nudging you or encouraging and you push back. And you say, not now. Or not completely. Or I'll, no. And we just try to live a part of our lives apart from him. And, and we harden our hearts when we do that. Barbarian is Scythian. I want to tell you, I don't have any idea why those two are in there, and most other guys don't either, or gals, so I'm um, just going to move on. Slave or free, I just see these as a list of contrasts between kinds of people and different ways that we find our source of pride that keeps us from being unified in Christ. That's really the point of that section, is that we allow pride to puff us up and look down on our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that was happening in the Colossian church. It was dividing the church, which is why Epaphras went to find Paul in the first place. Now, he wraps up here by giving us verses 12 through 14, which is the put-on part. Okay? We're exchanging the gross life for the good life by putting on. And what are we putting on? Well, I'm going to read that, but before I... Well, let me read that first, and I'll come back. Therefore, in light of what I've just read... As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, then he tells them, this is what you do. Clothe yourselves with, and he gives a list, compassion, which is basically mercy that's doing something about it. Kindness, that's grace. If you have mercy, which is not giving them what they do deserve, grace is getting what you don't deserve. So it's like another side of that. Kindness, um, humility, which is the opposite of Pride. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Okay, I didn't come up with that. That's a really good one. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, or you could say less often, or less, my, mess, less elevated. Quit elevating yourself. Gentleness, which is kind of in the category of meekness, which is, I think of a racehorse. You put this little, little, little 
spit of a guy on top called a jockey and he controls this beast that's over one ton in weight and it's this powerful horse that that goes when he says go and stops when he says stop and that's power under control that's what meekness is it's not that we are weak it's that our weakness is man it looks like we is manifest strength manifest in that we're allowing god to be our strength which is unlimited but we're recognizing that it is perfected when we are weak when we are acknowledging our weakness gentleness though is also not being pushy okay so there's a, there's different kinds of leaders right there's a, there's leaders who are pushy they push you to do things or manipulate you to do things and then there's other leaders that sit back and don't lead they're in position of leadership but they don't so that's like the opposite it's like they're passive and then you have these that are really you know the high chart hard charging leaders and, and then you have leaders that are that are like um you know i'm going to I'm going to respond as I feel God's leading me to do. And sometimes that means I move forward. Sometimes that means I hold back. But I'm not going to be the initiator. It's kind of like when you go to the beach. I don't surf. I don't know what it's. I've never tried. I could never do that. But surfing, when you go surf, you don't go out there and start splashing in the water trying to make waves to catch, to surf. You don't do that, right? You wait for the waves. Because it takes an enormous amount of power, and the moon, by the way, to make a wave. And so you're, you're waiting in the water on your surfboard until you can catch a wave that has been generated by somebody or something else. And then you ride it in, and it's a great ride. I, so I hear. Okay? Looks good anyway on YouTube. All right? So when he talks about us having this power, in this, whether you're a leader or and we're all leading somebody somewhere, if we would just let him be the lead and we would follow his lead, we would look around and see a lot more people behind us than we probably do. Easier said than done. Confessions from a terrible leader. Okay, gentleness and, and then there's that word we all love, patience, right? Don't pray for patience unless you want to be put into a lot of challenging circumstances where your patience will be tested and tried and stretched, okay? And he follows that right up with um, um, bear with each other, which is another way of saying patience. So, so I think the old definition of patience is long-suffering, so you're, think about it. Okay, you're sitting in traffic, and what are you doing? You're smoking, steaming, you're, you're, you're suffering. But you're suffering. You're not really suffering. But you're suffering because you're going to be late, or you're, you're just inconvenienced. And the longer it goes, right, you just want to blow your top and yell at somebody. That's not long-suffering. That's short-suffering, okay? That's not patience. That's impatience, all right? I don't know if this has anything to do with patience in the hospital, but nevertheless, there it is, patience. Bear with each other. Notice who he's talking about be patient with each other what's the context a church family it's like paul expects us to be impatient with each other wow he really knows us doesn't he and then he continues and he says and forgive one another forgive each other it's like he expects that we're going to hurt each other's feelings and wrong each other and need forgiveness yeah he knows churches really well how many of us, I wonder, are walking around with a grudge? I mean, wouldn't that be horrible to find out somebody had a grudge against you? And you could have, I mean, you, maybe you're even willing to own it and apologize for it. Maybe it wasn't your fault and you don't need to do that. But, right, it's, it's a, and it just becomes bitter and, and worse and just deepens. And it becomes about something that is so unimportant in the scheme of things. And I can tell you, most things are in that category. And yet we can allow them to become just bitterness. 
And he says, you know, when we exchange gross life for good life, we're exchanging the ways of the world for the ways of Christ. And the ways of Christ say that we bear with one another. We suffer longly with one another. Okay? I have no doubt that there's people that suffer longly for, in, with me because of how I might do something. You know, that, that comes with the territory, right? And I'm very grateful for that. Okay, you, this is a very gracious church. You guys are just amazing um, because I know I give you lots of reasons to, and, and I'm not the only one. We all do that, right? We all give each other reasons to go, gosh, I wish they would stop doing that or start doing that. And, and that's not unique here. That's at every church that's ever existed. Okay? So I'm just grateful for the grace and mercy we experience here at Grace. Um, uh, bear with one church. Okay, so forgive as the Lord forgave you. So there's another verse that is in Matthew 6. And I didn't give the guys in the back of the heads up on this, so I'm just going to read it to you. And Jesus has just finished teaching on the Lord's Prayer. And he says this in verse 15. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. You know, in the Lord's Prayer it says, Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Well, if God forgives us as we forgive others, do you really want that? Careful. When you pray that prayer, because if you don't forgive people well, then he's going to forgive you the same way, because you just prayed for it. It matters what you pray. Words matter. So, uh, and, and Paul's saying that in a different way. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you, or as he forgave you. And he did forgive you if you looked to him and confessed your sins, because he promises if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us, purify us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. He is a, he keeps his promises. Now, verse 14 wraps it all up and puts it in a bow, and it says, now, um, we're not, if you don't want to wear an apron, okay, here's something even better. But the apron, I think, illustrates it really well. And he says, and over all these virtues that he's described, compassion and gentleness and patience and forgiveness and all the rest, he says, all the, over all these virtues, put on love. Put on love. Which binds them all together. It binds all the virtues together. And it binds the people together. Right? In perfect unity. Okay? And so that's, that's how he wraps it up. And then he's going to continue. And we're going to pick it up here in verse 15 next week. And we'll keep going. And we're going to get through. And he's going to start talking about husbands and wives. And how you deal with your kids. And how your kids relate to you. And how this deals with slaves and free. And, and all those slaves you've got hidden. No, I'm just kidding. But it does talk about slaves and earthly masters. And we'll relate that. Because that will relate to some of our career choices. And how we deal with bosses and employees who work for us, and you do what I say because you work for me. Sounds like slavery to me, but nevertheless, I didn't choose your job. So you see where we're going? Paul is saying, in light of chapters 1 and 2, and who Christ is supreme, and who we are in light of that when he rescues us, we now have very clear direction on how to think, how to speak, and how to behave in a way that's not just good for the other people, but good for me. Good for my family. Good for my future. That sounds like good news to me. It sounds like really good news. If you don't know Christ, you don't have that identity. This is where verse 12 comes in. Therefore, as God's chosen people. Oh, he's not going there, is he? Listen, hear me out. Who's he writing to? He's writing to people who are in Christ. So clearly they're chosen, right? 
And what did he choose them for? He chose them to become conformed to the image of Christ. Is that terrible? Does that sound horrible? No, that sounds awesome. It means that God's going to finish what he started in me. It means that one day the gap is gone. Yes, yes, the gap is going to evaporate. Why? Because we get good at this? Because he rescues and takes us home and finishes salvation. Yes. I'll never perform my way into a good place with him. I just keep moving in that direction because I want to. I want to be more like a yearn. And by his grace, I'm incrementally hopefully making a little bit of progress here and there. And he says, but I picked you because I love you. You're my beloved. As chosen, and he says, you are holy and dearly loved. Okay? Holy means set apart. It means you have been set apart from those who are set for destruction. Okay? And I, don't, I, we don't, I know we don't like to talk about hell, but Jesus talked about it. We've got to go there, right? It's a real thing. And the lake of fire, however you want to paint it, it's a place you don't want to be because there's no God there. He's not there. And you don't want to be anywhere your creator isn't. Let him change you. Let him change you from the inside out. But he will not force his way in because he's a gentleman, but he stands at the door and knocks. There's no doorknob in that famous painting of him knocking on the door. Why? Because he's not going to force his way in. He's waiting. The doorknob's on the inside. And he's waiting for you to open the door and invite him in. He says, if you invite me in, what is he going to do? I'm going to come in and have dinner with you. That sounds beautiful, doesn't it? You're going to sit down and have a conversation over really good food and drink with your creator. That sounds awesome. Because the food you know is going to be out of this world if he's there. Right? He invite, He's knocking, but he is not forcing. Will you let him in? Okay? If you're not a Christian, let him in. And how do you do that? You just say, you just open the door of your heart. You just say, come on in. I receive because I believe. Okay? And if you're already a follower of Christ, but you've kind of pushed him back outside and closed the door, he's still knocking. That was actually who the message was to. Christians or so-called Christians, Laodicea. And he's knocking on the door saying, let me in. Let me back in. Before the food gets cold, let me back in. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you made a way for us to get back to you even in our foolish, wicked, um, empty-headed ways of running away from you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have enough um, sense to recognize the grace you're giving us right now to believe and receive, to open the door and let you in, and that we would do that. God, it's not like you want to make us do something we don't want to do. You want what's best for us, but you, you want us to see it, to receive it. We have to believe that you've got a gift for us and our name is on the tag. Custom designed for us. And that we would receive that gift by grace through faith. Believing and knowing that that is all that you ask is that, you would, that we would just take you at your word. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life, not perish eternally but live forever. That's what you give us if we would just receive it. Help us believe even when we struggle with unbelief and meet us in that place and save us from ourselves and our sin. In Jesus' name, everybody said.